0: Well, you know, it's hard to believe that Christmas and New Year's have already come and gone. We've taken down the stockings, we've disconnected the lights, we've recycled the tree, we've boxed up the ornaments and tinsel and nativity sets. Hey, we decked the halls and now we've cleared the deck. But though the trimmings of Christmas can be shelved when the season ends, the ramifications of the Christmas message cannot be so neatly dismissed. The implication of the incarnation spills over into every day of the year and it invades every facet of our lives. I love what author Eugenia Price writes about this time of year. She says, Men and women everywhere sigh on December 26th and say they're glad Christmas is all over for another year. But it isn't over until you is born a Savior. It's just beginning, and it will go on forever. Christmas is a grand beginning. It's the first rock in an avalanche of miracles. It's the landing of a massive invasion. It marks a new day in the future of mankind. The babe of Bethlehem didn't remain in a manger. He climbed out of that crib, and he embarked down the rough and rocky road of obedience to his father's will. He traveled a path of sharing and serving and suffering. And for his obedience, he has been rewarded in heaven with a position of exaltation and glory and everlasting honor. Messiah traveled from the manger in Bethlehem through the muck and mire of this evil world to ascend to a position of his supreme majesty. The babe with a name known by few now possesses the name before which every knee and every tongue will declare its surrender, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus joined humanity on the ground floor. I guess you could say infant is about as close to an entry-level position as possible. Jesus came as a baby, but he has now worked his way up the ladder. Trust me, today the babe is the boss. At Christmas, we see the baby in the manger. We behold the tiny and tender and innocent tot. But the next time this world will see Jesus, he's going to pierce the eastern sky. His sword will be drawn. He'll judge the wicked. And we all will call him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In the Revelation, the Apostle John gets a glimpse of this awe-inspiring, fearful figure John's heart is still full of love for Jesus. His memories of the Lord while on earth were his most cherished possessions. But in our text, on the barren island called Patmos, the apostle receives a vision. He sees his Lord Jesus once again, but this time, Jesus' appearance is radically different than what John had remembered while he was on earth. Now Jesus is clothed in majesty. He is gone from manger to... Back to majesty. And in Revelation chapter 1 verse 13, John recounts what he saw. He writes, One like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. What an incredible vision. Obviously, a startling transformation had taken place. Jesus' swaddling clothes have now been replaced with royal robes. Shoulders that had felt the weight of man's sin now bear a priestly breastplate. His face sunburned and weathered while on earth is now as pristine as snow. The gentle eyes of Jesus are now penetrating lasers of truth. His calloused feet, symbols of his humility, are now polished brass made to crush his enemies. The tender voice that calmed the sea now roars like a waterfall. To sum up John's revelation of Jesus, the lamb he had remembered now appears to him as a lion. You know, it just goes to prove you can't take the babe of Bethlehem and box him up with the electric candles and the plastic Santas. You can't keep the Lord of glory a baby. He no longer fits inside the Bethlehem manger. And yet there are many people who try. A Messiah tucked away in a manger is more manageable. He can be controlled if we can keep him in the cradle. The living Lord can be bound and gagged with swaddling clothes. Mary Ellen Ashcroft, she writes this, we can tiptoe past a drowsy baby as we buy stocking stuffers for little Susan or an electric lint remover for Aunt Phyllis, forgetful of African children dying, bellies swollen and flies swarming around their eyes, but it would be ridiculous to try to sneak past this Jesus his eyes aflame. How can we give that cute Christmas mug, penguins in red and green top hats, to Betty at work without bothering to tell her about Christ if we really thought she'd face those blazing eyes herself one day? Our problem is that we want to keep Jesus a baby, not have him swinging cords in temples and tastelessly knocking over tables. Oh, we prefer the slumbering babe to the consuming fire. You know, parents, they realize that they can take a baby pretty much anywhere. After all, the kid doesn't have a say. You wrap a baby up in a blanket, pop him in the, sho- in the uh, stroller, and you're off to wherever you want to go. Well, a baby may pose a little inconvenience, may make travel a bit more cumbersome, but a baby doesn't stop a person from doing what that person really wants to do. It's only when the child grows up that he or she expects to have a say in the family agenda. And this is why folks like to keep Jesus a baby. By doing so, they can live their lives and they can do what they want without interference. We can box him up and take him with us. A babe can't talk so we can pretend that he agrees with our selfish plans. As long as Jesus is a baby, we're in control. And Jesus, well, he's just religious cargo. But Jesus is no longer a baby. He has all grown up now. The Christmas manger was in actuality a king-sized bed. Jesus climbed out of that manger and he ascended to majesty. Agree or not, the babe is now the boss. For me, the most fascinating aspect of the Christmas story is that the second person of the Godhead not only became a man, but he remains a man forever. Today, 2,000 years after his birth in Bethlehem, the king of heaven is still a man. The incarnation was permanent. God is forever now attached to mankind. The word became flesh. And he wears it even today. You know, some people think of the Son of God as coming to earth in human form, living and dying and rising from the dead, then ascending to the Father where he shed his humanity to return to his pre-incarnate status. But that's not so. Once a man, Jesus is now always a man. As Bishop, Bishop Mool once wrote, incarnate, slain, and risen again, Christ, still our brother, is crowned with glory and honor. Amazingly, the Lord is still our brother. The New Testament teaches us that Jesus is currently in heaven interceding for us. And here's the kicker. He's doing so as a man. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 reads, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Here's the stunning, amazing truth that right now and forevermore, a man, Jesus the Messiah, is sitting on God's throne in heaven. Chew on that for a while. You see, the gospels are clear that after his resurrection, our Lord Jesus maintained his humanity. The body that was crucified and rose again was the body that ascended to heaven. Jesus ate food with his disciples. Mary and his disciples reached out and touched him with their hands. You recall that amazing moment when Jesus invited Doubting Thomas to put his hand into his side, the hole in his side. Surely his resurrected body was clothed in eternal glory, but it was human nonetheless. I believe that when we get to heaven, we're going to be shocked when we finally see Jesus. Isaiah 52 prophetically informs us that when Jesus was executed, his body was severely beaten. His visage, that is, his facial features, were so disfigured that he no longer looked human. He was bloodied, his beard plucked out, literally at the roots. His brow was pierced with thorns. His face looked like that of a professional boxer who'd gone 15 rounds in a bloody brawl or the victim of an airplane crash, disfigured beyond recognition. If the 12 disciples had had a funeral for Jesus, I'm certain it would have been clothes casket. And if the risen Christ bore scars in his hands and feet inside, which he did, why not those scars in his face? And on his brow. Perhaps this is why Jesus suffered a case of mistaken identity outside his own tomb. You remember when Mary Magdalene first saw her risen Savior. She thought he was the gardener. In Revelation 5, John sees the glorified Christ as a lamb. But as a lamb that had been slain. And it's my belief the risen and glorified Christ in heaven still bears in his body the scars of his crucifixion. He retains the ugly reminders of his sacrifice for our sin. This is why I say our first glimpse of Jesus may be surprising. It's not what most of us will be expecting. Isaiah 52 verse 15 tells us, So shall he startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see, and what they had not heard, they shall consider. Could it be when we see Jesus, rather than beholding chiseled contours and stout muscles and rosy cheeks, a handsome visage, that we'll actually be looking into a damaged and disfigured face? An old friend of mine once wrote a song entitled The Eternal Reminder. It remains one of my favorite songs. In one of his stanzas, he describes our first few moments in heaven. He says, I cried in glee, no more will there be any trace of sorrow or of pain. But my Savior shook his head and said, Some things remain. He showed to me his hands and feet, how badly they were scarred. And then I knew as never before how much I owed my Lord. And then the song ends. The pain and struggles known on earth are gone forevermore, save the only scars that will not fade, are on my precious Lord. Here's a riddle for you. What's the only man-made thing in heaven? And the sobering answer, the scars still evident in the body of our Lord Jesus. Reminds me of the story of the little girl whose mother was severely disfigured. Her face had all kinds of burns crisscrossing her face. And when the girl started school, her mom's appearance caused her great embarrassment. Classmates called her mother a monster and poked fun at the little girl. She started to hate her mother for all of this. It didn't take long for mom to realize the problem. And so one day, she set her daughter down. And the mother explained how she had acquired these scars. It seems that when the baby was just a child, one night their house had caught fire, and it was the mom who had braved the flames to rescue her little girl. Her scars were the result of the severe burns that the mother had suffered to save her daughter's life. And the moment the daughter heard the story, her attitude changed. She was never again ashamed of her mother's scars. Those same scars that were a source of embarrassment became a point of pride. And this may just be our response to Jesus when we reach heaven. At first glance, we'll be shocked and stunned at the Savior's scars. We might even recoil in horror. But when we remember those scars were the price he paid for our salvation, our tears of sorrow will suddenly turn into tears of joy. We'll be full of praise and eternal gratitude. God became a human Not just for 30 plus years while Jesus lived on earth, but forever. God cares about mankind enough to become one of us for all eternity. Hebrews chapter 2 discusses God's eternal plan for humanity. The writer quotes Psalm 8, the psalm written by King David. You know the psalm. What is man that you are mindful of him? At the time David wrote this psalm, he was just a young shepherd boy. He was out in his father's fields with his family's sheep. Uh, Imagine a middle school David curled up in his sleeping bag. He's under a starry sky. His eyes are fixed on the heavens, marveling at the ocean of scars before him. As young boys do, David may have imagined himself sailing across the cosmic sea, a star traveler, exploring the wonders of worlds different from his own. No doubt David was admiring God's artistry and genius when it hit him. While he was on earth thinking about God, God was in heaven thinking about him. What a stunning realization. David marvels at God's grace for all humanity. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? Realize on a clear night out in the country, away from the city lights, they say you can see about 5,000 stars with your naked eye. With a four-inch telescope, two million stars become visible. Through the powerful 200-inch telescope at California's Mount Palomar Observatory, you can see up to a billion stars. And now with the Hubble Space Telescope, you can see more than 200 billion stars, have suddenly become visible to astronomers. Indeed, our universe is a vast place with endless attractions and fascinations. But what if you could view the universe from God's vantage point beyond our feeble telescopes? God is in heaven, sitting on the precipice of the universe. Think of the vistas he can behold, the sights that his eyes can see. All creation is laid subject to his scrutiny. And you see, David marveled. For of all God sees, of all his infinite interests, his attention is focused on man. David was preoccupied with heaven, but heaven was preoccupied with David. God's mind was on man. See, here's the truth that God revealed to David. Throughout his vast universe, God narrows his focus to one tiny galaxy, and in that galaxy, one tiny solar system, and in that solar system, one tiny planet. And of the millions of creatures that live on planet Earth, there's one creature of which God values more than all the others. To God, the cream, daily cream, is the creation on planet Earth called human. But why mankind? Why has God invested so much attention on humanity? We're beings dirged from the dirt. I mean, we're molded from the mud. We're really nothing but animated ashes. Sweep the floor when you get home and you'll be reminded of how frail and fleeting you are. As the rock group Kansas used to sing, all we are is dust in the wind. And the Bible agrees Psalm 103 declares, God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The common funeral chant sums it up. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. But David understood that man's value is wrapped up not in what he is, but in what God intended him to be. See, man is important because we were made in God's image. Our real worth can't be measured by our current condition. You have to return to our creation or fast forward to our coronation to grasp our full value. Because of the damaging effects of sin, mankind is no longer a fraction of the glorious creature we were designed to be and will one day become. Realize all living things were made after their own kind. But man was special. We were molded after God. We were created to rule by God's side and enjoy a sweet intimacy with God. We were made in his very image. And our purpose was to extend God's dominion and to rule with our creator over all his creation. Hebrews 1 says that even angels are commanded to minister to the needs of the saints. That's you and I. 1 Corinthians 6, we're told that our destiny includes judging the angels. I don't understand that, but that's what it says. Mankind was the cap and crown of God's creation, a divine masterpiece. We're the one creature created by God, purposed to actually share in his incredible glory. There is a legend mentioned in the Jewish Talmud. When the archangel Lucifer got wind of God's plan for man, he grew jealous. Man would be made in the image of God? We would begin a little lower than the angels, physically inferior, no doubt, but in time, man would eclipse the angels in glory and greatness? Hey, Lucifer couldn't stand the thought of him serving these little mud daubers these little human hairballs, creatures made from the dust. So he became determined to thwart God's plan. Lucifer and his minions first tried to stop creation. When that failed, he then tried to spoil creation. His goal was to do everything he possibly could to keep man away from God and his plan for our promotion Of course, Satan succeeded with the first man, Adam. He tempted him to sin and stole his dominion. Satan stripped Adam of his prestige and his preeminence. And since then, rather than thrive, the Adam's family has just struggled to survive. Today, human beings live in a fallen world where we have unleashed a Pandora's box of pain and suffering and evil. We've become a slave to our own sin and its destructive consequences. Because of our sin, man has gone from honor to horror, from glory to gory. Mankind was made to dominate and shine. Instead, he now lives defeated and soiled. America's most famous philosopher, Will Rogers, once said, God made man a little lower than the angels, And he has been getting a little lower ever since. And this is why the Messiah became a man. This is why he was plastered to our predicament. This is why God allows himself to be held prisoner to our humanity. He has joined this fallen world in order to free it. To regain for humankind the dignity and dominion that we lost. To cleanse us of our sin to remove our shame, to restore our honor. Jesus adopted our destiny because he was determined to alter it forever. Jesus is now God stooping down and man standing up. Our Lord is the humiliation of God and the glorification of man. Jesus became a prisoner of our plight to restore our destiny. You know, it's interesting when David, the shepherd boy, he wrote Psalm 8, he was thinking of mankind in general. But the writer of the book of Hebrews applies his psalm to one man specifically, that is Jesus. In becoming a part of the human family, Jesus could fulfill David's prophecy. In taking on a human body, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. But through his obedience and death, he has now God has now put all things under his feet. Our Lord Jesus rose the man all men were meant to be. And he has now been crowned with glory and honor. And according to Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10, he is now bringing many sons into that glory with him. The Messiah in the manger has embraced our destiny so he can elevate us to his majesty. One day, we'll share in his glory. One day, if you believe in Jesus, if you have given your life to him, you'll possess the same kind of body. You'll even reign and rule with Christ. You know, in the Bible, whenever a human sees an angel, he he hits a deck. He literally falls on his face on the floor. Why? Angels cause panic. These are some big dudes. They're pretty mean looking. They're kind of warrior types. They're so awesome, they frighten human observers. Yet 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3 tells us that one day we believers will judge angels. We started out looking up to the angels, but in the end, they're the ones that will be shining our shoes. Redeemed humans will be of a higher rank than even the angels. We're told in 1 John 3 verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We'll be like Jesus. We'll have the same body type. Won't that be cool? Those same fiery eyes, that same sparkling countenance, those same bronze feet will be ours. Believers in Jesus are destined to be like him one day will be spiritual heavyweights. C.S. Lewis once remarked, a regenerate man in glory would be something we in our ignorance might be tempted to worship. If we saw a saint in glory, the glory that one day all saints will possess, we might mistake that human being for something divine. The New American Standard Bible translates Psalm 8 verse 5, Thou hast made man a little lower than God. Indeed, God will exalt mankind to dizzying heights. Paul Bilheimer, in his book, Destined for the Throne, writes these words, God has exalted redeemed humanity to such a sublime right that it is impossible for him to elevate them any further without bringing them into the inner circle of the Godhead itself. You know, there's a lot of talk today about positive mental attitude and boosting one's self-esteem. Humans need to achieve self-actualization. Be the best you, you can be. The human potential movement says that man is still evolving, that he's yet to reach his highest capabilities. New agers today believe humans are destined to be gods. Well, I agree that man is not a fraction of what he can be Or one day will be. But the critical error being made today is this. Man is not rising upwards. He has fallen downward. As Augustine put it, man is a good thing, spoiled. Mankind lost his glory when he rebelled against God and God's ways and God's order. And his glory won't be restored apart from God. I'm sure you've noticed that today everyone is trying to find themselves. Trying to find themselves. And yet for most folks, finding themselves is only swapping one shirt for another until you find the one that itches least. The irony is that you can't truly discover your purpose and your real identity and your ultimate destiny until you connect with your creator. Jesus is the man that all men were meant to be. God wants you to reach your full human potential, not by esteeming self, but by esteeming the Savior. You become like God, not trying to be God yourself, but by letting Jesus be God in your life. As big as the universe is, it's still only big enough for one God. The point is, humble yourself And surrender your will to Jesus. Bow to him in this life, and God will exalt you with him in the life to come. You'll be all that you can be by connecting with Jesus and by following him. Jesus became human, and he remains human to guarantee our exaltation. Jesus descended from majesty to manger. Then he ascended from manger back to majesty so that we can stay in step. Andrew Murray writes of Jesus, His humanity is the revelation of what we can be. His divinity is the pledge that we can be it. Once a mechanic and a sculptor, they were competing to create a statue that would sit on the pinnacle of this huge skyscraper. Well, the sculptor's statue was chosen. It was an exquisite piece of art filled with meticulous detail but as the crane hoisted it upwards into the air, it lost its definition. And by the time it got to the top, it just looked shapeless, like a shapeless block. Well, that's when they tried the mechanic statue. On the ground, it seemed clumsy and uncouth. But as it rose higher and higher and higher, and when it reached its perch, its deformities vanished. The further it ascended, the more elegant that it looked. And this is the Christian's plight. Now, we don't appear, we don't look like much, trust me. We we appear pretty uncut. We're pretty rough around the edges. We're nothing but dust. But one day we are going to ascend with Jesus. And as we do, we are going to take on a breathtaking beauty. And here's why all this matters to you. For tomorrow's destiny... Produces today's determination. See, I'm no prophet, but I guarantee you in this next year, trouble's gonna strike at some point. Doubts will arise. You'll face some fear. You'll you'll encounter some worries. In fact, you'll be lured into a compromising situation and be tempted to sin. And that's when you need to be sure of your destiny. Why sell out to cheap thrills and earthly promotion when in just a little while we're going to join Jesus in all his glory? Why swap God's eternal riches for this world's tasteless treasures and its passing praise? Why risk such a tragic compromise when so much is at stake? In 1 John one, I'm sorry, 1 John 3, verse 3, the Apostle John is speaking of our future glory when he says this, everyone who has this hope in Christ purifies himself just as he is pure. Our hope is a purifying hope. It keeps us clean, it keeps us ready for all that he has for us. It was Augustus Strong who penned the refrain, could you envision, see yourself The man God meant, you never more would be the man you are content. In his science fiction space adventure, Pella Landry, C.S. Lewis wonders what it would be like to taste fruit in a perfect world. He has this Earthling travel to a planet unsoiled by sin. This mortal man he finds unfallen fruit, and let me. Let Lewis describe this experience to you. He says, great globes of yellow fruit hung from the trees. He picked one. He turned it over. His finger punctured it and went through into coldness. He put the slit to his lips, extracting the smallest experimental sip. But the first taste put his caution to flight. It was so different from other tastes it seemed wrong to call it a taste at all. It was like the discovery of a new genus of pleasure unheard of among men. For one drink of this on earth, wars would be fought and nations betrayed. In other words, even heaven's simplest pleasures will provoke a kind of ecstasy unheard of on earth today. And here's my point. Heaven will be worth it. It will be. We'll need glorified bodies just to handle all the heavenly highs. So why forfeit eternal bliss for earthly attractions? Why forego an eternity in heaven for a moment on earth? Trust me, guys, it's not worth it. To know my destiny, to know what awaits me, builds up my immunity to sinful temptations in the here and now. Granted, the Christian life is not a bed of roses. To enter God's glory, we're often called on to sacrifice. Numerous passages tell us that if we suffer with Jesus now, then we'll reign with him then. We must bow in this life to be exalted in the life to come. Serving is needed preparation for ruling. But in light of our future glory, our present suffering is just a small price to pay. You know, the Apostle Paul a man who definitely had experienced his share of suffering. He says as much in Romans 8 verse 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Listen, did you know that heaven's very first second will be joy enough to more than make up for all the pain on earth that has been dished out to you? Do you realize the very first second of heaven's pleasures are going to even the score? Hey, it's okay to celebrate Christmas and to recall the birth of Jesus. Just don't leave him in a manger. Jesus is all grown up now. The child of peasants has become the king of glory. He's been upgraded from crib to a crown. From a manger to majesty. Make Jesus a part of your new year. Just as you did your Christmas celebration. Let him fill your every day and let him color your world in every way. The incarnation of Jesus accomplished more than just add another holiday to the calendar. It did more than create a Christmas. The incarnation now marks a turning point for every person who has ever walked this planet. Let me close with the incident that was recorded in Luke chapter 2, right after the Christmas story. Joseph and Mary had brought their newborn to the temple to be circumcised. And Jesus was seen there by an old man. His name was Simeon. He had waited his whole life long for this moment. God had promised him that he would see the Messiah before he died. And there Simeon, he, hold, he held Jesus in his arms and he uttered a prophecy over him. He said, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many. Because of Christmas, God has forever altered the destiny of the human race. Every man, every woman rises or falls based on their response to the Messiah in the manger. Jesus now occupies the pivotal position in the universe Will you force him to oversee your final fall? Or will you bow to him so that he can ensure your future glory? The choice is yours. Just remember all year, every year, the babe in the manger is now the Lord of glory.